We are here to uncover the good, the bad, and the ugly of the IT industry. My name is Robin Johns, and this is Convergence by Cato Networks. With legacy network solutions based on VPN, authenticated users used to gain access to everything on the same subnet. Only a password prevented unauthorized users from accessing a resource. Zero Trust flipped that paradigm by allowing users to only see the specific applications and resources explicitly permitted by their company security policy. So where did Zero Trust come from? And why should you care? Today's guest is Bill Carter, one of our Cato Network's sales engineers. Today we'll talk about the principle of Zero Trust, verification processes, and how does a proper ZTNA architecture actually look like? So let's get started. Hi there, Bill. How are you doing today? Robin, I am fantastic. It is good to be with you once again. How are you today? I'm fantastic as well. It's a pleasure talking to you on our CyberTalk podcast, and it's a pleasure talking to you on Convergence. So for the people out there who don't know who you are and what you stand for, who are you and how did you get to where you are today? Thanks, Robin. So uh, I am a cybersecurity engineer. I'm a cybersecurity buff. I absolutely love the field. And to kind of tell you where that came from, it really all started, it was actually quite some time ago. If you recall back in 1983, there was a movie that came out called War Games starring Matthew Broderick. And once it actually got to cable TV, I had the opportunity to view it as a young man and knew at that moment that this was for me, right? To be in the computer world, to be interested in cybersecurity, that was for me. And lo and behold, you know, fortunately, my parents saw that. Mom bought me my first computer. It was a Texas Instruments TI-99-4A. In order to load programs, you had to push play on a cassette tape, Robin. That's how old I am. But I started with that not so much from playing games and so forth, but I wanted to be a programmer. I wanted to learn how to make them work. So as I, I moved forward, I went into university, got into software engineering. And as I came into my career, I, I started out as a, a computer operator, went into system administration and worked across multiple verticals, Did uh, worked in the financial industry, retail, uh, manufacturing, even went into management of, of several teams of engineers. But really, back in that time, cybersecurity was just kind of part and parcel of of being a system administrator. Eventually, I got to the point, though, where I could see that this really was growing as a profession. I jumped into a systems engineering role. So probably 40% of my career has, has been as an end user and 60% has been uh, working for organizations that try to bring cybersecurity solutions to market. So uh, we fast forward to today. Here we are. Uh, we're in the middle of uh, such an amazing and an exciting time in cybersecurity. I made the crazy decision to go back to school, uh, get the master's degree in cybersecurity and keep up the certifications. And, and here we are. So the payoff of all of this is I get to talk to you now and we get to share a lot of great information about cybersecurity in the industry. Plus, you're a heck of a guy to talk to. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to depress you and let you know I'm a millennial baby born in 91, but I still have fond <laughs> memories of watching war games and Flight of the Navigator back to back on a there lovely Sunday afternoon. So, you know, we're all here. So you wanted to be kind of a programmer, an operator to begin with, and your career has kind of shifted. So what excites you today? 
You know, what's exciting is the pace of change in cybersecurity. The reality is we more and more all over the world are really getting to a place where we live a digital lifestyle. And so much of what we do, whether we're, we're doing commerce or banking or even our entertainment, a, a funny story to tell you, I have, a, I have a young daughter and she was watching her tablet device when we got in the car the other day to go somewhere watching a, a movie. And when we backed out of the driveway and started down the road, she became terribly confused because suddenly her movie stopped. And it was because we got out of Wi-Fi range and it just never struck me what an amazing world we live in now where that connectivity is just expected all the time. So that really is what excites me. It's the pace of change in our digital lifestyles. But of course, with all that goodness comes the risk for exposure. And to me, it's so exciting to get to work in a field that not only helps individuals and really enriches their lives, but when you start looking at the larger picture, you know, there's some unfortunate aspects, right? A lot of the conflicts that we see around the world, they start in cyberspace first. So this industry and the evolution of, of cybersecurity is just endlessly fascinating. And uh, I think it's a pretty good way to spend a life. Indeed, it is. And as internet becomes more connected, you know, my children are the same. If we go on a drive somewhere, if we decide to leave the house, we're always Wi-Fi hunting to an extent. But it also <laughs> leads to a more of a dependence on the technology. Instead of it being supplementary, it's seen as critical. And I know there's a lot of arguments at the moment that the internet shouldn't be seen as a luxury good, but a utility, like gas, electricity, or even housing to many. But as this becomes more and more adopted into our everyday life, there's more risk, there's more challenge. And to be honest, Bill, I don't trust you at all. I have zero trust in who you are, what you're doing, where you come from. Is that the right way to go about life? Well, I, you know, Robin, with a face like this, I can understand that. But you know, uh, <laughs> as, as we become more connected, I think we could make a good argument that says that you really do need to adopt that mindset. The concept of privacy has really changed over the past couple of decades. When we get into this world of being so intimately connected over infrastructure and, and really that sort of cellular explosion that took place, I'm, I'm sure you, you might remember the days when you used to have to carry a big bag in order to talk and, and your talk time was all of 20 minutes. But we, we are so incredibly connected now that, that privacy is really an interesting phenomenon. Even our vehicles kind of tell on us and let folks know where we are. So with that, uh, that change in the nature of privacy, we really do need to revisit what it means to, to trust, especially with our digital footprint. And I think that's where, as that evolution has taken place, you begin to hear more and more about this concept of zero trust. And that that's a pretty complex uh, onion to peel, so to speak. And I think it's worth visiting that a little bit and understanding what it means to, to trust in this day and age. Take me through the layers and don't make me cry. Show me the <laughs> onion. <laughs> yeah, I'm more than happy to. So we had a great opportunity on a recent cyber talk to touch on zero trust a little bit. And Robin, I think you, you really shared something that was profound, and that is that zero trust really is a philosophy. It applies outside of IT just as it does inside. It's really not a process or, or a product per se. In fact, Forrester, the analyst, as recently as January of 22, 
they published a statement that I think really, it made me chuckle, but it, it also showed a little bit of a problem that we have, particularly in the cybersecurity industry. And that's that zero trust is so often mischaracterized as a widget or a product, right? That you can you can buy this and, and this is zero trust. And what Forrester said was that those who are looking to implement that concept within their IT framework became very skeptical. They became confused and, and frankly, fatigued at the fact that we kept referring to zero trust almost in, in the area of a product or a widget. When the reality is, Robin, that, that very human part of you was dead on the money. It is a philosophy. It is uh, an outlook, and it's a way to design what you're trying to accomplish, which is to protect those things that you want to be kept private. So it's kind of akin to a religion. You don't do Christianity. You don't do Judaism. You practice it. You instill the methodologies of these religions into your everyday life. And through it, you become a better person, effectively. Or within ZTNA, more secure. And I say Z, you said Z, the other way around, you know, American, no, Brit. Yes, uh, ah, we'll, we'll work around that. We'll kind of ignore That's it for right. now. We are two people divided by a common language. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. So what are the principles in your perspective, or what are your interpretations of zero trust? So at a high level, Robin, zero trust means that the old, and we'll use another metaphor, the old moat and castle framework just doesn't apply anymore, right? There is no traditional network edge the way that there used to be. The truth is we've seen a journey taking place within IT for quite some time. This is nothing new, but the old days of everything being very localized, very private, and then having the connectivity for consumers to be able to access those materials, those days have, have they've, they've really, they've kind of gone by the wayside. We see adoption of public cloud or, or even hybrid cloud infrastructures. And certainly the past several years with the, the pandemic outbreak have taught us the incredible importance of being able to be mobile, right? Your users being able to be remote, uh, they can change locations very quickly. How do we actually protect that from a, a zero trust perspective. And really, zero trust ha has a lot of um, different concepts. I, I tend to break them in my mind down into pillars to try to define what this is. But, you know, I think if anybody is really interested in, in digging further into zero trust, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies uh, here in the U.S. has published document 800-207. That's a mouthful for you. But you're able to take a look at that. And interestingly, Robin, I don't, I don't know if you saw this. This actually came out uh, a day or two ago. The Pentagon here in the U.S. is about to release their guidance when it comes to what zero trust is. So I guess the message here is that, again, it's a, it's a philosophy more than it is a process. And you're going to continue to see it evolve through time as, as we continue to learn more about cybersecurity in, a, in an ultra-connected world. Yeah, when you look at people like the Pentagon, government agencies, institutions, generally they are slightly behind the curve or they have a different interpretation of reality. So by understanding the principles from multiple angles, we get a greater view of what zero trust is. Now, I need you to suspend your belief for a moment and pretend, <laughs> I say pretend, I'm an idiot. I know I'm an idiot. By experiencing and admitting you're an idiot, you actually get to learn a lot. So run me through 
the basic principles of zero trust. How is it different to a legacy moat and castle architecture? And why should I care? Robin, we we have a saying that says that you may be dumb like a fox. So, uh, you know, I appreciate <laughs> you and the, the knowledge that you have. When we roll the tape back a little bit and look at the world pre-zero trust or pre this this concept of zero trust, particularly in IT, we always looked at things from a concept of authentication and authorization, right? How do I actually gain access to what I'm looking for? And I kind of want to take even a step back from that because I think a lot of times we confuse authentication and authorization, which is, is sort of rudimentary when it comes to zero trust. Authentication is really the process of trying to identify that the user is who she says she is. And that is typically a one-time process. Now, we try to get very fancy with things by doing processes like multi-factor authentication. And we talk about when you're trying to authenticate somebody, is it something they know? Is it something they are? Or is it something they have, right? These are very basic cybersecurity strategies in, in terms of authenticating. But it's really to try to figure out that you are who you say you are. Versus authorization, which says, now that I think I know who you are, here are the pieces and parts that you're allowed to see, that you're allowed to access. And that's where the world used to live. With zero trust, though, we, we really need to take that further because this is not a static conversation that takes place when we identify who somebody may be and what they're allowed to talk to. We need to continue to verify that during the entire period that those individuals are trying to access that data. And that's really where zero trust comes to play. We don't simply identify them one time and figure that it's finished. We need to continuously verify as well. There's this concept, uh, we always talk about the CIA triad and cybersecurity, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. But I think there's a fourth that we neglect too much and that is non-repudiation. In other words, if you come in, you authenticate, we authorize you. We continuously look at the traffic. If you do something, we need to be able to identify that it indeed was you. You can't repudiate that. You can't say, well, that wasn't me. That was somebody else. This is where zero trust really comes to play. So to answer your question, I've kind of done the prelude to it. To answer your question from an IT perspective, I really think of this in three pillars or three major aspects. Aspect number one for a zero trust framework is that you need to protect and secure not only your data, but your applications. You need to be doing that at all times. Pillar number two is that continuous inspection and verification that we discussed. That means we're gonna look at data flows as well as being assured of user identity. Now that may not mean logging in again and again to prove that it's you, but it may be looking at things like behavioral characteristics. Are you doing what we would expect you to do? And then last but not least, to kind of round out what is zero trust from a high level, I would say it is enacting the principle of least privilege. This goes back to authorization again. We need to make sure that anybody or anything that accesses data is only given access to that data that is absolutely mission essential for what it's trying to accomplish and unfortunately, Robin, we have to look at that from the perspective of limiting the scope of damage if we start going outside of that framework. So that was a mouthful, but I think at a high level, 
that's kind of what we're looking at when we, we consider zero trust. I love it. The best security professionals out there always plan for the worst and hope for the best. So I think if we get breached, what's going to be the impact? What's going to be our surface of attack? What's going to be the financial accountability? And I've always ever thought of the security crowd as CIA. Adding the N, I guess that turns it to cyan now, if you wanted to really have something nice to say, but having that accountability and being able to always track what has happened, that has dovetailed into some media incidents that have happened recently where CSOs have had fiscal responsibility on their shoulders through either accountability or non-accountability throughout. So embracing zero trust is a way of not just securing, protecting, but also remediating any potential negative impact or breach there might have been. Now, remote users are the big challenge. You and I being in a home office or working away from main HQ, not behind a site, we are gateways of attack into environments and people should take us very seriously. But for many small and mid-sized businesses, they don't have a remote worker strategy. It's very haphazard. So how can I go from being total trust to zero trust? Boy, you hit it on the on the head once again, Robin. When we are looking at remote users, the first thing that we have to do as a business is we have to formalize our policies. That's number one. The old world of simply giving them access and making sure they authenticate, it, it really is not enough. It's not enough for zero trust. So we need to determine those policies first. They have to align with our business requirements. And truth be told, there are industry regulations with which we may need to comply. Uh, there are laws. We need to stay on the legal side of things. So first and foremost, for your remote users, you've got to make sure your policies are in place before you begin down this path. Now, as we get that established, there's certain other pieces that are prerequisite in order to, to make this happen. Number one, the software or the solution that you utilize for remote access has to be secure. Uh, that goes without saying. We need to know that that traffic is going to be secured. We're going to encrypt it. And, and not just from a, a tunneling perspective, but the actual data itself, right? If, if we compromise a tunnel, we don't want that data visible. We want to make sure that any of that data for that remote user is it's secured. It's Even if intercepted, it'll take, what, 40,000 years to reverse the, the RSA algorithm or, or whatever it is that we use to encrypt that. The other aspect of it is we, we do have to be, we have to get much stronger about authentication and, and passwords. Now, thought processes have changed over time concerning passwords. You know, it used to be recommended that you, you change the password on a regular basis. And, and a lot of that's changed, uh, surprisingly, even from a governmental perspective. And I love what you said earlier that the government is behind. I like to think of it in optimistic terms that they, they study much harder before they speak. Uh, that may not necessarily be the case. But again, I, I think that, that's, uh, that that goes to shape this narrative. We need to look at things like multi-factor authentication. And we even need to be careful about the ways that we're doing that. Some of the things that we're able to do with you know, cloning SIM cards has rendered SMS texting a rather poor way to do that multi-factor authentication because that, that's, that relies upon the principle of something you have. And if somebody can clone a SIM card, for example that multi-factor authentication is broken because it's something someone else has. So we, we need to be very careful about authentication and passwords. We already covered on the principle of least privilege. You have to be able to reinforce that. And then last but not least, you really need to look at it from the perspective of continuously monitoring that data flow, continuously monitoring that behavior, 
and the context in which that data flow and behavior is taking place. Now, there are white papers available that you know we could certainly share that really take you down through that. But that's really, I think those are the key elements for securing that remote access and as well as providing a, a resilient infrastructure that allows that remote access to take place with an end user experience that you know we hope delights the user. Sounds like a lot of work, not going to lie. Any ways of simplifying managing a ZTNA approach? Any vendors you recommend? <laughs> well, certainly, I'm going to be very biased when I say this, but one of the <laughs> one of the reasons that that Cato Networks really attracted me to come be a part of the team is that when the solution is converged and it's easily managed, where you can create that policy. Remember, I told you that was first and foremost. When you can create that policy and in a matter of seconds, that policy is reinforced all around the world, regardless where the user may be or what they're trying to accomplish. That's absolutely huge. You're right. It's a lot of work. But through uh, through intelligence, through being able to do automation, through being able to manage this from a single point of access, so to speak, I think it suddenly becomes much easier to focus on what you're trying to accomplish and not so much with wrestling with tools to make it happen. Life's already complex as it is. Why make it harder? So... You've mentioned that you've had a very illustrious career and you've touched many aspects of the way of tech. If you were to miraculously transport yourself back in time to a fresh-faced 20-year-old Bill, what would you tell him? What do you know now you wish you knew at the start of your career? This is a, a question that really hits me from a personal perspective, Robin. And I think it's a question that a lot of younger people are asking themselves now. It's It's my opportunity to uh, speak frequently at the local university here with uh, one of the adjunct professors to actually address those uh, younger people who are coming up and trying to find their way into a career into IT. I guess what I wish I could tell myself back then was to really invest myself in the formal education much, much earlier. One of the conceptions within IT is don't worry about college, don't worry about a degree, go get your certifications. Certifications are incredibly important. If you do certifications, make sure you keep up with your continuing education on those so that you keep your certifications active. But also, I would tell my younger self, pursue that advanced education. Go get that bachelor's degree and that master's degree, because while it doesn't necessarily keep up with the pace of changes, it really opens your mind to new ways of thinking. And Robin, so many times we've talked about the psychological aspects of cybersecurity and IT and really being able to look outside of yourself and think a little bit differently. I would also encourage the embracing of diverse thoughts. And some of the, the greatest ways that we can have diverse thoughts is from diverse people. Really, really embrace that. Learn new ideas. Think outside of yourself. Two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much as you speak. Although you might argue on this podcast, I've done exactly the opposite. But uh, I, I really do think that that is so incredibly important. As I look back, I would recommend that to myself. And, you know, we live in, a, in an amazing time, Robin. If you want to go back and you want to get that advanced education, you want to learn to think more broadly, there are so many powerful online programs that you're able to go do that. Please take a minute to look and, and see where that opportunity exists. The treadmill of tech will always be turning. New concepts will always be emerging. There's new things to learn about vendors. 
The thing that never changes is critical thinking and being receptive to new ideas. Learning how to learn is probably the most key valid skill you can get through your life. So thank you very much for educating me today, Bill. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to seeing you again. Likewise, pleasure as always, Robin. Take care. That was all for our episode today. I hope you've come away feeling a little more educated and empowered. In case you've forgotten, I'm Robin Johns, and you've been listening to Convergence by Cato Networks. Don't forget to hit subscribe, and I'll see you next time.